This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So gestational diabetes prevalence is increasing, but we also have to think about, is it really increasing? In 2014, about 8.3% of pregnancies, women were diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Within five years, it's at about 14% now. So that is only in five years. And I would definitely echo that I have seen that increase in my cohort of patients as well. Absolutely. You know, my very wonderful mentor, Rhiannon Hardingham, often talks about pregnancy being the ultimate stress test for our metabolic health. So if there's any vulnerability in our metabolic health at all, then pregnancy will shine a light on some of that. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In Season 2 of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we continue the conversation, this time on gestational diabetes with naturopaths Amanda Haberecht, Belle Roundtree and Jane Hutchins. Belle Roundtree is a naturopath from the Mornington Peninsula. She says she's seeing more women with gestational diabetes in her clinic. I guess that probably goes hand in hand with some of those features that increase risk for preeclampsia. Then certainly GDM or gestational diabetes is certainly one of the things that across the board, I think we can probably say we're seeing a bit of an upward trend. Mm. Whether that's in line with the increase in PCOS screening and a little bit better understanding of PCOS in mm. women who are diagnosed before they're falling pregnant. And also too, I guess we know the prevalence of type 2 diabetes in the community. Those cases more generally are, are increasing as well. So can you give an, an idea of what proportion of your patients might have gestational diabetes? Hard to say as a figure, but I would say it's probably maybe at least one or two in 10 if a little bit more. And then what do you find to be the most common risk factors? You know, my very wonderful mentor, Rhiannon Hardingham, often talks about pregnancy being the ultimate stress test for our metabolic health. So if there's any vulnerability in our metabolic health at all, then pregnancy will shine a light on on some of that. So definitely, you know, some of the things that cross over with preeclampsia, maternal age being over 40, BMI above 30 at conception, family history of gestational diabetes or type 2 diabetes, 
any kind of metabolic disease or um, if there's been an individual history of gestational diabetes in previous pregnancies or PCOS, all of those things will definitely increase the risk and they tend to be very important parts of the screening process for my new patients when they come in and see me. Um, Poor sleep, um, I'm sure for anyone who works in metabolic health more broadly than just infertility and pregnancy knows the impact that poor sleep can uh, have on negatively influencing what our fasting blood glucose levels are doing and then sort of that snowball effect of what our energy levels look like and then our associated food choices based on some of that poorer energy as well. I'll always prioritise preconception and pregnancy screening to determine risk as well. So having a look at what the patient's fasting blood glucose is doing, their fasting insulin. We can use HbA1c as well as a a bit of a risk screening as well and also having a look at their inflammatory markers. So things like their CRP as well can be really helpful data to gather just to understand even in the absence of some of those known metabolic risks, what this individual case and patient's looking like so that we can put our best foot forward, I guess, with understanding their risk of GDM. And so if you do your risk screening and you find a high risk in the patients that you have there for preconception, how do you find the the kind of compliance? Yeah, so I think it it's certainly a very can be a very helpful motivator because it gives us a little bit more substance to kind of say, yeah, yeah, we all know we have to eat well and eat our veggies and move our bodies and do the things that are important for our health. But specifically, we know this is very, very important for you based on these results or this kind of risk profile as well. So it's certainly from a practitioner perspective, it gives me a lot more, puts a little bit more kind of meat on the bones in terms of the recommendations that I'm making to kind of say, yes, these might be the general things that I would say for anyone entering preconception or pregnancy, but for you, these are the things that are very, very critical for us to be focusing on. Amanda Huberecht is a women's health naturopath in Sydney. She's been in clinical practice for 25 years and says she's seen a change in women under her care being diagnosed with gestational diabetes. If you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said, no, I think it's kind of those statistics are pretty kind of static. But absolutely, I see that much more than gestational hypertension, gestational diabetes, there is no question that over the last few years I've seen this more on the increase and I have more and more patients that I'm trying to manage who are developing gestational diabetes or have gestational diabetes or are at risk of it. And I think there, you know, I think there is a combination of factors that are contributing to it. I do, I do wonder with all of us kind of um, working from home that there has been a real kind of increase in sedentary lifestyle. We're all just like Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting um, so that women having to kind of sit a lot more, a lot of that incidental exercise that would kind of happen when she was going into the office and on and off transport Mm. is like a total kind of bias of mine. I think this dependency on Uber Eats and delivery foods, I think it is a huge contributing risk. And I think even women are thinking that they're making healthy choices, but they're not kind of considering what oils that food is being cooked in, 
if there is additional sugar in sauces, if there's additional preservatives and, and you know, as we know, when we order Uber Eats or whatever those delivery services are, the portion sizes are much bigger than what we would normally probably cook at home. So, yeah, I'm definitely seeing it clinically. And Australian statistics do really echo that. I was looking at some of these statistics where, and possibly we're capturing more of these women as well, but they were saying that in 2014 about 8.3% of pregnancies, uh, women were diagnosed with gestational diabetes, but within five years it's at about 14% now. Wow. So that is only in five years and I, I would definitely echo that I have seen that increase in my cohort of patients as well, absolutely. Yeah, you've kind of struck on one of my passions now about <laughs> about cooking and it's not just about educating on the different fats and, you know, choices, but it's also educating on cooking, like cooking skills. Do people have the cooking skills? Do they have the kitchens that are able to, to cook the meals? Um, what about their time management? It's very complicated, isn't it? It really is. And that's why there's a lot of times that I'm kind of really counselling my patient around five-minute meals. You know, I'm like, you can cook an omelette. You can pan fry a piece of fish in a bit of olive oil and have it with some salad. You know, you can cook a couple of days of, you know, roasted vegetables or do a slow cook, you know what I mean, just so that you minimise this kind of dependency on delivered food or look for delivered food that you can actually put together yourself and that you can actually prepare it with olive oil and your sauces and use rather than those kind of you know pre-dressings that are kind of coming with it you know and also everyone eating out as well you know and they're all kind of getting Thai takeaway and they don't realize that just that it's laden with sugar and preservatives Mm. yeah and, and the wrong fats and the wrong fats you know I mean they're dangerous we know and they're just like leaping into our diet everywhere what about, you did mention stress. What about, is stress a factor in, in this topic as well? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a really good kind of question because obviously we know that cortisol is a glucocorticoid mm-hmm. and a big part of regulating blood sugar levels and that we know women are already, their cortisol is spiking already early in the morning. Again, that's going to increase their risk of kind of insulin resistance. So one of the things that I'm often saying to these women is making sure their breakfast has good protein and good fats in it so that it can kind of dampen those kind of cortisol spikes in the day. And as we know, you know, so many people just run out the door and throw a piece of toast in their mouth or a poor quality cereal. And if they're already kind of, you know, their cortisol levels are already spiking in the morning and then just adding a high kind of carbohydrate or processed carbohydrate meal, it is just going to kind of affect those risks. and But women learn that because especially these women, I mean, they're checking their blood sugar levels. So it doesn't take them very long to understand what is spiking their blood sugar levels. And I'll say to them, have a good omelette in the morning, you know, with some good fats on the side or some good quality, you know, Greek yogurt with nuts and berries and, you know, and just look at what kind of spikes your blood sugar levels. And so it doesn't take them long to understand that, you know, making sure that there is protein and fats there, that they'll have a much better day, a much better 24-hour window mm. with their blood sugar levels. What are some other, I guess, risk factors? What what else is driving this, do you think, this increase in gestational diabetes? Well, definitely those women with PCOS. Mm. We 
that they are at increased uh, risk. Definitely women who have had a history of disordered eating. And I really, really investigate that with women and they'll be like, oh, God, that was like 10 years ago or whatever. But, you know, really tragically that the statistics are that, you know, that we know that about 20% of women can relapse, even if they've had a really good relationship with food for, you know, the last five to 10 years, that up to about 20% of women can actually relapse in pregnancy. You know, there's all this confused uh, relationship with food, especially with bulimia that we can see um, women all, you know, and that they feel so rotten and they're eating a whole lot of more carbs and foods that they wouldn't kind of normally eat. So it can kind of trigger those, you know, those relapses definitely. Mental health, you know, a history of depression definitely correlates. So, again, that's, you know, comes back down to their uh, relationship with food, uh, low vitamin D, again, um, Mm. dark skin races, which, of course, relates to low vitamin D, can increase our risk for the development of gestational diabetes and the more pregnancies you've had too. So it's a little bit different to the hypertension and the preeclampsia risk that the more pregnancies a woman has had actually. And you do wonder if that's because she doesn't have enough time to make good dietary choices. And, you know, we know a lot of women are just like, you know, wellness goddesses for their first pregnancy. You know, they've got like sick kids and they're exhausted and they're not getting enough sleep. So you can be much more difficult to be motivated to exercise in some subsequent pregnancies. Jane Hutchins is a registered nurse and naturopath specialising in reproductive health. She questions the statistics. So gestational diabetes prevalence is increasing But we also have to think about, is it really increasing? (laughs) Um, So it is increasing because diabetes in the general population is increasing and women are older and have more insulin resistance and more diabetes before they even think about getting pregnant. And they have more risk factors. But the really interesting thing from my point of view is in 2014, the, the International Diabetes Associated with Pregnancy Consortium, something like that, some catchy name, they came up with a new testing regime. So it's a one-step test mm-hmm. and the previous one was two-step tests. And in Australia, pretty much everyone was doing the new test by about mid-2016. And our rates of gestational diabetes went through the roof. So it's a testing issue. And there's real pushback from endocrinologists, GPs, and the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists saying, now this is dumb. So we've implemented this new testing regime. All we have is more people with gestational diabetes on the medical record now, but we don't actually have more people who are unwell. And there's been a couple of, or a big study that came out only in the last six months from America that showed if you worked off the new regime with the 25% more women being diagnosed, like it's major, with gestational diabetes and do whatever you want to do with those women, it found that there was no significant improvement in outcomes. There was no reduction in neonatal issues, fetal issues or pregnancy issues. So what you did have was people having higher levels of intervention or consultations going to diabetes clinics and getting wrapped up in all of that and having the stress and anxiety of a diagnosis which mm, they may not have had. 
So that's the first thing I'd say is that, yes, the rates are going up, but not as much as they look like. Mm. And to kind of ask about that, look at her general history and look at previous diabetes or blood sugar levels or insulin resistance levels, look at her weight and her diet and her family history and all that sort of stuff, and you kind of make a uh, guesstimate. Um, I had someone recently, a new client, who was she didn't have her results. I spoke to her just before she got her results, and she was tested at 10 weeks gestation, which is just oh. like, dude, chill out. Um, <laughs> back off. <laughs> you know, step away from the pathology lab. Um, so she'd had diet controlled diabetes in her previous pregnancy. She didn't even need insulin. So that's kind of hyper something, hyper attentive and mm. maybe overdoing it. Hyper vigilant. Yeah, hyper vigilant. Thank you. <laughs> But most people we tested somewhere around 26, 28 weeks. So, yes, there's more of it. I'm seeing more of it, but not all of it's real. But I also do see more women with PCOS, so that changes my demographic a bit. And But I really reckon in Australia they're going to ditch it and go back to the other one. Because the other really simple thing was is that you spend less time in the pathology clinic with the two-step one. So in the pandemic, all the pathology clinics and diabetes clinics were like, no, we need to get, get out. Like we don't want people in here. Yes. So it was better from that point of view. There's a bit of pushback from the association saying, no, we like our test. I'm interested obviously in the complications for mum, but there are uh, complications for Bob too, aren't there, with this? And again, it's a really contentious area. There's lots of bickering (laughs) (laughs) within the research world and the clinical world. So, you know, things for Bob, bigger Bubs, not necessarily. (laughs) Bigger Bubs that are hard to birth. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. So you have to really question the, the veracity of some of the data. So there's a, a research I was looking at fairly recently that showed, man, just not that much of a difference. Mm. Not as much of a difference to warrant doing an induction at 37 weeks, which ends up with a failed induction, which is a terrible word, but an induction that didn't work. Mm. And she ends up having cesarean. So you've got this whole sequelae that you just didn't need. You just need to let it go. Mm. And I'm sure everyone listening has had the experience for themselves or a client where their baby is measured small or their baby is measured big and they just come out average. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not always an exact science. So I couldn't tell you the number of people I know who've been induced because of a big baby and it's like, oh, my baby was three kilos or something. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if you do have a really big baby, there isn't, like, if, like it literally is a big baby. Um, there is increased chance of baby asphyxiating, neonatal asphyxiating or during birth, and having shoulder dystocia, so getting stuck. And that is bad. Like it just sounds like, oh, I'll just wiggle around a bit. But it can be fatal for the baby or they can have asphyxia for long enough that they get um, brain damage. And it is not good for the mum to a baby stuck mid-birth. Mm. Um, so the baby also can have a, a reactive hypoglycemia if the woman's blood sugar isn't controlled in pregnancy and she has GDM. If it's controlled, that's not going to happen. Mm. They are at risk if it's uncontrolled diabetes or insulin resistance in pregnancy. The baby is absolutely at risk of cardiometabolic disease in their life as an adult, but some research also in teens, which is just frightening. You don't want to 16-year-old with 
cardiometabolic disease. Mm-hmm. So the trick or the key point there is unmanaged gestational diabetes. Mm-hmm. Because the flip side, and I think we've spoken about this some in a previous conversation, that a woman who is undernourished and or has a small baby, that small baby actually has increased risk of cardiometabolic disease later in life. Maybe worse than the big baby. So again, a little bit of crossover with preeclampsia as well. Bell Roundtree. We know mothers with GDM are more likely to go on to have hypertensive issues in their pregnancy as well. We know that in those patient groups that C-section delivery is also, we're a little bit more likely uh, if we've been diagnosed with GDM. That's often going to be because of the changes in fetal growth. So if we've got increased fetal weight or or large babies for their gestational age, then often the preference will be C-section delivery for those. And also, I guess, the the preference for uh, earlier induction of GDM pregnancies as well can have an influence on C-section rates too. So yeah, like I mentioned, for the baby, gestational diabetes can certainly contribute to what's called macrosomia or large fetal weight. And in GDM pregnancies, we certainly do, again, worry about things like miscarriage or even stillbirth as well. We know that postnatally that gestational diabetes is known to increase our risk of type 2 diabetes later on in life and can also influence postnatal weight changes as well. And for the bub, we know that babies born to mums with gestational diabetes are also a greater risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. What are the long-term or the complications for mum and bub with a woman who has gestational diabetes? So definitely the development of diabetes. I think it's something like 50% of women can develop type 2 diabetes. And I'm sure that is a cohort of women who aren't necessarily making those changes. I, again, don't necessarily kind of see that with my patients, but definitely mm. suggest that, that she's more likely to develop diabetes over, over the uh, over the next five years. Um, and of course, also that, you know, cardiovascular and the other kind of metabolic risks that will come with that. The thing that I'm always trying to educate my patients around is the lifetime impact it can have on their offspring because mm. insulin that is happening with mum causes the baby's pancreas to also produce high insulin. And so we know that not only are these babies, you know, can uh, you know, affect their production of insulin, but it can, it, it, that we know that the babies from women who've had, you know, gestational diabetes in their pregnancy, they have lifetime risks of cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance, pre-diabetic risk, etc. And also what I'm seeing, and again, it comes back to me being in practice for such a long time because now I'm often having these babies who are coming to see me because, uh, especially with young girls, that um, have high risk of polycystic ovaries and, you know, obviously PCOS, the whole kind of syndrome. I'm also seeing precocious puberty mm. as well, that they're much more likely because of that overexposure to insulin and glucose 
patients in their pregnancy when they were in utero, I definitely see clinically that these patients are much higher risk of precocious puberty, androgen, excess and early menarche, you know, those girls who are getting their first period around about nine. And we know that that's bio-directional as well because that women who, um, who you know, do develop gestational diabetes, again, it's much more likely if they've had early menarche themselves. So it goes both ways. And so those girls who do have, um, you know, have had an early first period, we know that they're going to be, that it's, it's a lifetime, they're going to be at risk of, you know, polycystic ovaries, insulin resistant and, you know, gestational diabetes themselves. What about the the management, I suppose, of the gestational diabetes? Diet counselling is really, really crucial for this patient group. There's certainly a very big gap for us to step into to fill between the standard or the conventional dietary education that patients are provided Mm. versus what we know is likely to give them benefit in blood sugar regulation through their pregnancy. So unfortunately, a lot of the standard recommendations will still be talking about, you know, eight and a half serves of breads and cereals a day and low-fat dairy and margarines and things like that. So I don't tend to recommend those kinds of things, which probably won't shock anybody. But um, generally speaking, I'll always be encouraging very low processed sugar and refined carbohydrates, focusing on complex carbs and non-starchy veggies for fiber combined with adequate proteins, adequate fats, also lots of education around food combining and how we can structure our meals for promoting an optimum postprandial glucose and insulin response. So, you know, talking about doing our veggies first, protein second, carbs last. I will say that I get a lot of my gestational diabetes diet resources from a practitioner called Lily Nichols, who is a dietitian nutritionist based in the US. She's also a um, diabetes educator. Um, So she's written an excellent book on nutritional management of GD. And she's also got really good resources for patients online. And one of her mantras is no naked carbs. So I talk about that a lot with my patients as well, making sure that when we are having carbs, even those in inverted commas, which isn't helpful if you're not looking, but even good sources of carbs or complex carbs are making sure we're eating those with protein and fat to help blunt the insulin glucose response after eating. Exercise is incredibly important as well. Um, We try to aim for at least 30 minutes daily where we can and aiming for that sort of moderate intensity where you can still able to talk, not able to sing, Weight-bearing exercise is also really great for promoting insulin sensitivity within our larger muscle groups as well. Walking after meals can also be really helpful for postprandial glucose regulation as well as, you know, some of those other pesky things that come up in pregnancy like reflux and heartburn too. We know that exercise helps us to reduce gestational weight gain. It can help us with blood pressure control. It Other benefits of exercise in pregnancy certainly help with increased rates of vaginal delivery and reducing the risk of that macrosomia or large fetal weight as well. Mm-hmm. Sleep management is incredibly important. Stress management is very important. 
you know, a gestational diabetes diagnosis can be really stressful and upsetting for women too. So Mm. I think that making sure that she feels supported and equipped to introduce some of these changes where she can. And of course, keeping in mind managing cortisol where we can is is certainly really important from a blood sugar perspective as well. And like we mentioned, um, improving sleep quality where we can to help us with glucose management too. Nutritionally, the things that I'll be focusing on is really making sure that there's adequate magnesium, chromium, zinc, vitamin D, iron, all of our nutrients we know are important for insulin response and for glucose management too. Some of the specific strategies that I'll turn to for helping to treat gestational diabetes, certainly um, myo-inositol is very well researched. Often, again, for women or couples that I'm working with that have had a PCOS diagnosis before their pregnancy, often they'll already be using something like that for blood glucose regulation anyway, but definitely any patient who screens as being a little bit higher risk for gestational diabetes, I'll often take advantage of myo-inositol in their treatment plan. But certainly as well, like I mentioned, magnesium, zinc, calcium, they've all been, um, there's great research available on the benefit of those nutrients in gestational diabetes too. What about the dose of myo-inositol? What dose do you like? I generally start quite small, but we know from the research between two and 12 grams is what we're aiming for. Just with some of the digestive issues with larger doses of myo-inositol, I'll just start little and build up. Mm-hmm. But gymnema is also something that I use just very traditional naturopathic support in drop doses for helping where some of those diet changes are significant for the mother or where we've got really overt sugar cravings and sweet taste sensitivities, then often I'll use the gymnema just in little drops to use to help kind of curb some of that. It's not something that I use routinely, but yeah, definitely in those cases where the the sweet tooth struggle is, is really high, mm. there's certainly some benefit there as well. Amanda Haberecht focuses more on diet, lifestyle, and nutritional interventions. There's a bit of conflicting evidence in the literature with herbs and blood sugar regulation. So, you know, we know herbs like, you know, cinnamon is great, but it's, you know, definitely kind of contraindicated. For me, I really stay away from herbs. I'm much more likely to use diet and nutrition and sometimes that whilst you know we have a very good relationship with a lot of their specialists they're a little bit more concerned about the use of herbs because you know especially if they're using insulin or metformin that they can compete against the receptivity of those hormones and we want those hormones to be landing where they should and having the impact where they should on that, you know, cellular level. So Mm. I'm much more likely to do with diet. Exercise, I mean, makes a profound difference Mm. and, you know, and more nutritional interventions. Do you use probiotics in gestational diabetes management at all? I routinely use probiotics in second and third trimester anyway. We know how it affects baby's health outcomes and risk of allergies and developmental disorders, etc. But, you know, I'll often use a multi-strained probiotic. I mean, the strains that seem to have the most evidence 
for, you know, reducing blood sugar levels and insulin. Definitely rhamnosus, Mm -hmm. definitely the bifidose species, especially lactus, some good evidence around strep Mm -hmm. as well. So I try and use a multi-strain probiotic that includes all of those and Mm. know that those probiotics are going to increase short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, which obviously is fueling our microbiome and increasing microbiome diversity and, of course, looking at foods that obviously prebiotic foods that are also going to help with that as well. But interestingly, you know, we used to, there was all this kind of discussion around, you know, baby's exposure, you know, the first microbiome exposure is when that baby passes through the vaginal canal and why we use more probiotics if we know that there is Caesar delivery, etc. But, you know, we know that actually that's not true, that, you know, baby's first exposure to probiotics is placental probiotics mm. and that the placenta has its own incredibly rich microbiome. So making sure that mum's diet helps to promote that kind of placental microbiome is also kind of crucial for, you know, again, there's, you know, a lot more emerging evidence and discussion around how that, you know, obviously that placental microbiome will minimise the risk of gestational diabetes as well. The placenta is fascinating, just absolutely fascinating, you know. If I had time, that's where I would just spend a lot of time just researching the placenta, you know. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss dyslipidemia with integrative cardiologist Dr. Jason Kaplan and functional dietitian Robbie Clark. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. Mm-hmm.